I tried this new pretty litter and it's like cat litter that changes color based on like what's in your cat's pee. I've tried to imagine the human version of that in which they make a disposable diaper where the the silica, the gel turns a different color based on whether David's pee has um, pretzel rods or or Cheerios. Like when you pee in the pool and it changes color, like everyone, you know, everyone's scared. I know, but everyone's scared of that. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer. Last week I said, je suis Mark Oppenheimer and got taken to the woodshed <laughs> by French teachers everywhere. I know that I should have said, je m'appelle Mark Oppenheimer. I was being overly literal Cheeky. in my translation. Je suis désolé and it will never happen again. I am here with tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. My French teacher told me I spoke like an American and I was like, je suis un American. <laughs> <laughs> And tablet senior writer Liel Leibovitz. As they say in French, a get to all of you. As they say in French, Annie Liel Leibovitz. Our Jew of the Week, our Jotwa, is Israeli superstar writer Edgar Carrot. And our Gentile of the Week is Henry Brinton, or as they say in French, Henri Brinton, a Presbyterian pastor who's the author of the new novel City of Peace. Which, by the way, it took a Presbyterian pastor just to balance Edgar Carrot. Yeah. This is how <laughs> Jewy he was. We needed to go full clergy with that guy. Right. And thus do we give you the most parv show in the world. We, we, we even out to total blandness by balancing carrots with Brinton. No, Brinton is lovely. Brinton is lovely. Don't um, you badmouth Brinton. I wasn't badmouthing him. I was making your point badly. Uh, you know what else I'm doing badly? I am learning to read Torah. Have I talked to you guys about this at no, all? No, you did not. So I've decided, you know what? I had one daughter who read Torah beautifully when she became a bat mitzvah. I have another who's starting uh, more intensive tutoring this week, um, though that's Ellie who's been going to to Jewish day school for the past year. So she she has some, some trope knowledge. So of course, for those who don't know, when Torah is read in synagogue, it's not just read, but it's read with a, a melody um, of, of relative pitches. It goes up and down in ways that are prescribed by little tiny markings in the book, but they're not on the actual scroll. So you have to you have to learn how they go and then you have to be able to memorize them. You, you not only have to be able to read Hebrew, but you have to assimilate this whole melodic system, which is really hard. And I've been watching my kids do it so beautifully. And I was like, I can do that, even though I'm not musical and I probably can't do that. But my friend Rabbi Carl, Carl Astor, said he would teach me. So I've been taking lessons with him over the summer, and I feel like I'm getting there. I'm getting like six months out. I may be able to take an aliyah in synagogue. But it occurred to me, it's been decades since I've learned a new skill. Like, I don't learn new things. You know, some people are always like, I'm going to learn pottery yeah. and then Chinese. And they like taking classes. I don't. I've been doing the same same jams since I was 12. Like, tennis, running, Chess. And even that you barely kept up with until right. Futterman came on. Right. And then like TV watching and reading books. Right. Like that's it. And the, a- Atrophy is where we're at. Yeah, we're at atrophy. The thing I was good at in school, which is reading and writing, uh, still, I, still I doing figured it. out how to make a living at it. Like I don't learn new stuff. So it's thrilling, but also debilitatingly difficult. But I, I want to say not only do I have the support of Rabbi Carl, but I have a new internet crush. Which is that somebody it might have been it might have been the algorithmic gods of YouTube suggested that I try tricks of the trope with Cantor Ariane Brown, who's the Cantor of Addis Israel in Washington. And you look, I'm happily married. Google says that she's happily married. So you've Googled it. Yeah, I have. But Cantor Ariane Brown, like like in some I love that this is his fantasy life is watching trope videos on YouTube. But she has this thing that she does where on these YouTube videos where she teaches the melody with hand gestures that look like the markings. So she goes, she's like, Mircha tipcha, 
et nachta. <laughs> and she's got these hand motions so that when you forget Mark's it. Mark's doing them right now. I'm doing so them right you now. Can't hear, so, you can't see them. <laughs> you know what? I think our listeners could have could have imagined that <laughs> even if you didn't say it. So <laughs> obviously he's doing My kids them. see me up late at night. They'll like come downstairs. I can't sleep. And I'm like, et nachta. And I'm making this little steeple with my hands. I love that you're doing this. I, we'll see well, how you it know, goes. My feeling about, about leaning like has always been, it's a skill I think that so few people outside the Orthodox world have anymore that if you could just kind of like fake it, it could be like, like it has a certain kind of rhythm that you could totally be just. Be honest though, like I think everyone should be Compton, leaning like a, no, like a 12 year old boy. Like why do we make 13 year old boys get up there and sing like a high pitched song where like your voice is destined to crack? Well, Here's my one in my Haftarah. It starts like this. If someone could tell me what it is, I would know. Rani Akara Lo Yalade Key. And that's it. That's it's all I want that, that is also my father's Haftarah. What? Represent. What is it called? What is it? Do you know what it is? Yeah. No, but. It's called you know, The Week After Labor Day it's, in 2000. It's, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> you don't do Rania Kara after Labor Day. Hello, y'all. Anyway, yeah, anyway. I can't get that out of my brain. The good news is I will sound like a 12-year-old boy. My voice will be cracking. Oh and God, um, so sweet. You and David can learn together. Maybe I'll invite you guys. I'm, I'm aiming for like next spring sometime. I think January, okay. February, March, I should be able to do a quality seventh of a Parsha. I would love uh, that. So we'll see. But um, meanwhile, Rabbi Carl and Cantor Hazan Arian Brown from D.C., whom I've never met, are like in my head all the time. Oh, you've you've met <laughs> this, you. my special YouTube friend, Kitcher Ariad Brown, who's it's tricks of the trope, baby. It's just it's just fabulous. It's just, it's such a good title for for a YouTube series. So, what are you doing, Liel? Here's what I'm doing. I'm exchanging recipes over Twitter. Proving social media is good for something. One of our lovely listeners wrote with, I thought, like an age-important question to say, "Hey, man, I have a bag of Bamba about to expire." I can just go ahead and eat it, but like, is there anything else you could do with Bomba? <laughs> now, so does Bomba expire? I thought that's like like would survive like a nuclear First blast. Of all, never, ne- never tell anyone. It's, it's like Israel's <laughs> secret, top like, secret. Bomba never expires. <laughs> Bomba will be there I after mean, like the the apocalypse. It was can, invented always in a munitions factory, literally, right? No. But I like that. Wasn't version. that the story? Let's, let's go with that. I thought Tablet ran too. that story. Someone put like peanut butter in the thing instead of the bullets, thought, and that's I'm why you have like bullet shape. I, p- I passed the factory. But if you like munitions, <laughs> I like munitions. why would anyone put <laughs> peanut butter in like an armament factory? All right, so you're exchanging. your inner world is really sliding into chaos. I thought I read that somewhere. Uh, so I might have mentioned this on the show, but there is kind of a time-honored tradition that every. Uh, stone out of his or her mind, Israeli teen or, you know, 20-year-old. You take the noodles, you take the bamba, <laughs> you introduce the bamba <laughs> to the noodles. You reserve some of the cooking liquid. Let's keep things fancy and flavorful. You sprinkle it fancy over- Fancy and flavorful. Uh, over, a reduction, if you will. Uh, if you will. Uh, a saucisson <laughs> of, right. of the cooking liquid over the bamba and the noodles. And then you sort of stir it gently with a fork <laughs> until you get the desired consistency. Uh, if you're not too stoned, you may add some chopped vegetables or any other uh, accoutrements mm-hmm. that you wish. And you have a very delicious dish. So everyone, go to Trader Joe's, get bamba, get spaghetti, and you have dinner, baby. So you were tweeting this to one of our listeners about yes. what, what you can do. Who, who kind of wrote back half curious, half, I think, disgusted. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that kind of answer. <laughs> I was like, okay. What's up, Stephanie? I 
had my two year wedding anniversary this week. Mazel Last night specifically. I don't know if you guys remember my wedding, but you were both there. Oh, we do. Let's go to the tape. Yeah, let's run it back. Um, I it's just so fun because I feel like time has has flown. I mean, it was just the this time last year that I had just finished writing thank you notes. Second anniversary is the traditional origami anniversary. Actually, for us, it was the pizza anniversary. And Uh here's why I'm telling you this. Here's why I'm oversharing about my life. So we were in Israel. We went to North Abraxas, which is the Al Shani restaurant. It's like this like kind of like crazy restaurant that turns into a club and like they just like give you shots of Arak. Or as Israelis call it, a restaurant. Or Israelis call it Thursday. Right. And first of all, everyone in Israel was like, you know Arak? You know Arak? And I'm like, I know Arak. Give me some. So anyway, we had this waitress. And of course, as we did with everyone who we spoke to, it was, so where are you from? New York. Where? Manhattan. Where? The West Village. Ah, ah. And she was saying that when she comes to New York, which everyone <laughs> does there, she's like, oh, I stay, you know, I stay in Park Slope. And I love to eat pizza while I'm there. And, you know. During the day, I also like, you know, I, I like this place, Sweet Green. Anyway, so she, so we're like, what are your favorite pizza places? Because Ben and I, you know, we love us some good, you know, like. Some za. Yeah. And so she was like, oh, you know, uh, Ruby Rosa. And we're like, okay, we know that one. And she like lists a few more. And she's like, and Scar's Pizza. But she says it, Scar's Pizza. Scars. And we're like, Scar's Pizza. She's what like, it's that? way downtown. And I was like. What? And so we look it up and it's, it's like. actually like in the water. No, it's like. It used it's to like, be Mufasa pizza, but there was a tragic it's accident. Like, <laughs> and now there's a whole new regime in town. It's on like Orchard Street, right by the East Broadway station. So basically we like. Oh, it's, it's actually my father-in-law's apartment. Yeah, basically. He actually makes Scar's pizza. And it's like this very cool like instant. Like ever, it's just like a cool pizza place right now. And there's like a few tables at the back. And there's like a bar. And so we went there last night. because we're like, where should we go? We don't want to do like a big dinner. Blah, blah, blah. And we're like. Should we go to Scars? Scars. Let's go to Scars Pizza. And like, we're trying to figure out like, how do we get the message back to Ariel and North Abraxas that we went to the pizza place and it was amazing. This, someone this will someone do in it. Israel, please yep. walk into North Abraxas. If anyone's listening in Tel Aviv. How do you say it in Hebrew? In Tzvon Abraxas. There we go. Tzvon Abraxas. Walk into Tzvon Abraxas, find Ariel and say, Scar, very achla pizza. Very Your good, feet. very good. Pizza Sababa. In the news of the Jews, I would like to take us to northeastern New England. Don't you always? 80 miles east of the homeland of western Massachusetts. In Hull, Massachusetts this week. Sad news coming out of Hull. Sad news for the 12 Jews in Hull and for for all who care about human decency. Uh, There was some graffiti found uh, that included messages advocating violence against Jews. The slogan, Hitler 2020. Did not realize he was running. I know. (laughs) And images of the swastika. Now... What I want to talk about here is the way the story was reported. So on the website of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, um, Marcy Oster, who's a staff writer for them and fan of the show. Hi, Marcy. Wrote an article in which she referred to the graffiti as anti-Semitic and racist. And reading her article, I thought, well, it strikes me that it's just kind of anti-Semitic. It seems to be all about the Jews because it also has a picture of um, of Anne Frank. You know, that sort of like black and white image. They of put Anne that Frank. up? Yeah, they put that up. They're very so committed. It's kind of like Heil Hitler, swastika, Anne Frank. Which strikes me as like Jews, Jews, the Jews, Jews. Right, like, right. Whoever this was was against Jews. And so And those I, are seven volumes of the Talmud. Right. So I wrote to her and, and Stephanie's Parsha. I wrote to her and I said, you know, why does this matter? Only because, look, there's obviously lots of hatred that's kind of promiscuous in its hatred. There's plenty of neo-Nazis and white supremacists who hate Jews and gay people and black people and Muslims and Latino people and you name it, like yada yada down the list. But then sometimes there's an attack that seems to be kind of just about one of those groups. And again, it could be any one of those. And it seems to me that as journalists, we want to be clear about that. So I wrote to Marcy and said, why did you say anti-Semitic and racist graffiti. It seems to be all anti-Semitic, nothing about black or brown people. 
And Marcy writes back, hi, Mark, love the podcast all the way from Israel, which is a terrific way to begin a letter to us, by the way. Then she says, swastikas are often also against black and brown people, which has been pointed out to me by others when I've called swastika graffiti just anti-Semitic. Have a good week, Marcy. So I said, can I quote that? And she said, yes. So I get that. Then I went and read the original Patriot Ledger article that she was getting her news from. And that article had called it racist in a subhead, but had called it just anti-Semitic in the article. So I don't know. I just have this feeling like sometimes anti-Semitism is just anti-Semitism. And it's also okay to like only hate the Jews. You don't also have to hate <laughs> we don't other need minorities. Yeah. It's fine. Look, I think, first of all, we have to say that there are Jews of color. So basically, the distinction between Jews and black and brown people is, is not necessarily right, a binary. Swastika doesn't you know, represent them as black it's, and brown it's people. It's kind of interesting, it's though, because Jews. if you saw like a neo-Nazi today, those, those like Charlottesville guys, they've almost co-opted the Nazi ideology that was specific. I mean, there was race purity stuff there. You imagine it would have extrapolated beyond the Jews who were their primary target, theoretically, right? But- it's kind of weird now because you're like, neo-Nazis hate everyone. Nazis hated Jews. Neo-Nazis hate everyone. So it's like today actually a swastika means hate. And it's sort of been universalized. And, and now, I mean, it's good that we recognize it as such. I mean, look, maybe it's smart strategy because there have been like, what, six or seven like super violent attacks here in New York City in the last month. And our mayor didn't even bother. Against Jews. Against against Orthodox, Orthodox Jews, Jews in, yeah. in Brooklyn. And our mayor didn't even bother holding a press conference, let alone coming back to town from Iowa where he's campaigning hopelessly for president. So maybe if instead of saying anti-Semitic, we said racist, maybe people would care that. I guess maybe we copped other I mean, people's pain and people who care about ours. I mean, Stephanie's clearly right that in the current context, like if you see a guy with a swastika on his arm or or his his girlfriend with her swastika on her arm, like there's it's a family affair for many white supremacists, right? Yes, they probably hate all these people, as of course the original Nazis did, but the original Nazis, the original swastika imagery does have particular anti-Semitic valence, and it seemed like these graffito artists knew that. I mean, I think Anne Frank really seals the deal. Right. When like if you put up, Anne Frank's right. photo, you're not curious about other races. You hate Jews. The terrific thing about the Patriot Ledger article is it says, the graffiti included messages advocating violence against Jews, the slogan Hitler 2020, and images of the swastika, a symbol used by Nazis. It's like, thank you for that. And then I thought that was slightly over-explaining, but wait. Then when we get down to Anne Frank, the journalist writes, Hull Police Chief John Dunn said the picture on the sticker is of Anne Frank, a young Jewish woman who died in a Nazi concentration camp after spending years in hiding during World War II. A young diarist. It's like they have to just like, like go so far right. out of the way to explain all these ID things. By the way, is, Anne is, Frank? By the way, is the graffiti also like misogynist because there's a picture of a woman is that also hate against that question it's question, question. she was also uh arguably bi according to recent reports oh, so she? is it also homophobic question question let's question. just go all out hitler 2020 does he have a chance of beating trump he pulls just under yang i think he's just and, above bill uh, de blasio and, and above de blasio <laughs> <laughs> he believes in open borders he's very <laughs> In fact, he thinks all of Europe should be one country. <laughs> he's really troubled by Trump's isolationism. He's really, he's really a much is. more expansionist candidate. Liel, any, any news of the Jews for us? There was a story at BuzzFeed this week that made me unbelievably happy. The headline, America's Orthodox Jews are selling a ton of the products you buy on Amazon. Apparently, Amazon's third-party sellers uh, would make up 58% of all sales on the site. 7% of all Amazon third-party sales, 7% originates from one zip code in Brooklyn, which is run by a lovely Orthodox Jewish-owned business. How incredible is, is that? Is that like that zip code directs, like reroutes you to Crown Heights, like right away? Right. 
Or is it so Williamsburg? Did seven, it say where it is? Seven percent of all third-party stuff on Amazon comes from one <laughs> Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn selling you stuff, which first of all makes me so happy. Second of all, makes me really believe. You know, Amazon already has like uh, denominations. It has Amazon and Amazon Prime, which is like the special thing. And the, like the Dutch Reformed Church, Amazon. I dot, think. Yeah, I think we're going to have a whole new era of like Amazon stuff. There's going to be uh, Amazon Prime reform. Yeah. <laughs> which drives right up to your house on Shabbos, has no problem with that, to deliver your goods. There's going to be Chabad Amazon Prime, which sends Just, you to fill in no matter what you buy. <laughs> like you could go and buy our book Shabbos and be like, candles here's some Shabbos candles. The, the algorithm knows if you're Jewish. He doesn't even have to ask. And it's, you know, the best the thing AI is, is so great. Amazon Prime renewal just renews your Amazon Prime all the time. Oh, all the time. It's great. But wait, this isn't the only Amazon-related news this week, which is kind of amazing oh, for no. us. Oh, no. We don't get to talk about Amazon enough. Oh, no, it is not. The big news, as reported by a uh, fan of the show, former guest, dear friend, uh, Jewish mayor of West Virginia, Benjamin Cohen, <laughs> uh, is that Amazon is coming to, guess where? Where? Drum roll. Amazon, O-M-F-G. This is like, is it the Messiah? Is Amazon coming? I think Amazon is about to face a very rude awakening, <laughs> understanding just who it is that they're dealing with. You know how, how like sometimes, you know, people say, oh, people around the world hate us because they hate our, f like they hate Americans because they hate our freedoms. So like as a swarthy Middle Eastern bearded man, the thing that we hate is not the freedom as much as it is the order. Like what good is it to order a package and have it just told it will come on Wednesday and then it comes on Wednesday. Like there's no surprise in life. <laughs> it takes all the magic Where's out the of Where's the delight life. in life? So Amazon will soon discover that if they promise to deliver something on Wednesday and then it arrives on Wednesday, there's going to be trouble. Okay, here's Israelis would never this, stand for that. Like it's crazy that in Israel you could not order things on Amazon. And what this actually means is that the American relatives of Israelis have been schlepping things, electronics specifically. Like people bring an extra bag just like full of like the new laptops. My cousins went back with like a laptop each, and you're like, you gotta get it here, otherwise you can't get it anywhere. I absolutely understand why you would schlep the electronics. Here's what I don't get. Every Israeli I know goes on an absolute binge at a CVS or a Dwayne Reed. To get what? Like $300 worth of shit. And like you look at their bag, be like, you don't have like floss. Right. Uh, Head and shoulders? In, there are no in combs Israel, like, in Israel? I, I know for a fact that you do. What are you doing? It's like, uh, but it feels so America. You could go into the Dwayne Reed. You buy what you want. Benjamin's article, by uh, the way, begins with a story about this woman, Devorah Messing, right. not the Deborah Messing right. of Will and Grace. I was like, wait, Devorah Messing? Devorah Messing. Oh, yeah. And how she was so upset when she moved to Israel. From the show your own um, Vegaula. <laughs> she couldn't get the Starbucks via instant packets, but now she'll be able to. But they're to. for pumpkin spice lattes. The best part is that now they've gotten them, they get they take like suitcases back and she, the girl doesn't like them anymore. It was her daughter, right? Her daughter yeah. was into via. She's like, oh, I'm not into this anymore. I will say Amazon drones, I can't imagine are coming to Israel because like there's a, like there's a whole like iron domes. Like I just can see things getting like really weird there. Well, I think the Palestinians can make a killing, no pun intended, doing this instead of their like kite bombs. They just have like kite Amazon deliveries. Yeah, Gaza could be one huge supply center. Like you'd order your pumpkin spice latte. They'll just tie it to a kite. And no, they'd it, have one of the Hamas, right one of the one of the dolphins, one of the Mossad dolphins, or, or use the tunnels. I'm, I'm telling I you, there's a whole infrastructure. I want to buy one of the Mossad dolphins on Amazon. <laughs> we have to find out for for recent listeners of their show what episode it was where we talked about the conspiracy theories in the Arab was, world. Isn't it every episode about which uh, which animals were being trained by the Mossad? That was a we haven't talked we haven't had a news story about that in too long. Israel getting Amazon soon. Mazel Tov.
So a few Fridays ago, Liel and I have an interview scheduled with Edgar Carrot. Edgar Carrot is one of Israel's most well-known and most beloved writers, and he has a new story collection out called Fly Already. So because he's Israeli and because we're idiots, we assume this interview is by phone, that he's in Israel and we're gonna go to the studio and we're just gonna like do it by phone. So we show up, we're both wearing like our Friday worst. I'm in a shirt that actually has holes in it and Liel's in one of his like, I would say less formal t-shirts. And all of a sudden, Edgar Carrot just walks in and we have no idea that we're supposed to be meeting him in person. This is the interview we recorded once we recovered from the complete shock of seeing one of Israel's literary legends, IRL. We have a special treat today. We are here with Edgar Carrot. His latest collection of stories is Fly Already, and it is as Edgar Carrot-y as you would expect. And we're just delighted to be here with you. Oh, thank you. What's Edgar carrot -y? You know, like really funny and sharp and like dark and a little weird and wacky in one sentence. And kind of heartbreaking too. And then you laugh and then you're like, wait a minute, that's very profound. I want to go sit on the couch and think about it for the next eight hours. And then emerge somehow a better person while still being entertained. But that, it's I, really I, hard I, to achieve. I see you as somebody who always looks for an excuse to sit on the couch for eight hours. <laughs> you have got me down completely, Pat. That's exactly <laughs> how I am. And I sort of kind of learned it from you because I grew up in Israel. And the, the books that I was made to read in high school were, um, what's the right word, terrible, terrible books that I found absolutely, you know, incomprehensible. Aleph Bet Yoshua and other nonsense. You don't have to agree with me on this one. And then all of a sudden, your first collection, you know, what comes out. And I'm like, oh, my God, here is someone, A, who, who speaks in a language that I can completely understand, B, who has these thoughts and ideas that seem disconnected from, from some kind of great archaic project of all literature must grapple with the ideology of the state. And, and see something that really felt like it was plugged into this, I don't know, I, I, I want to be rude and say really Jewish spirit, like Kafkaesque spirit, like something that seems ancient and internal. How, how do you feel about all that? I, I know that the discussion about you has been a really important part of the ethos of your growth as a writer. Are you tired of this discussion? No, no, no. It, it's funny because, you know, I think that uh, I'm 52 years old, and I think that in the last two years, I've actually began to understand that I'm a strange person. <laughs> and it was really because, you know, when you grow up, you never think that you're strange, you know. But uh, but uh, it, 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 I, I just remember these kind of things that when I was a teenager, I always wanted to hit on girls. And I thought, like, what would be the best way to get close to a girl? Uh, and I thought that, like, you know, if you hold a girl in your arms, like if you just carry her, then it's, you're just either like a fireman is uh, get, taking her out of a burning building or uh, her groom taking her to the, your new apartment. So I think that the moment that you grab a girl in your arms, like, you know, and hold her, then you're at an advantage point. Like you can ask her for a date, you know. So uh, f uh, for a very long time, I thought that the, w the best way to hit on a girl was to say that uh, if I carry you in, your, in my arms, I can tell you how much you weigh. <laughs> and, and I thought that it was just this kind of beautiful way of hitting on girls. And most girls don't want you to know how much they weigh. So it never worked. So, so I'm saying just this in general, that many times when people talk about my stories, I ask them, what do you think about my stories? And for me, my stories are myself. And then they say, oh, they're so strange and weird and aggressive and depressive. And 
I said, oh, wow, I never knew that I was uh, weird and aggressive and depressive. And then I start thinking about it, and I, I guess they have a point. You, you know what I think they are? Leonard Cohen had this amazing line uh, about his, his music being a manual for living with defeat. I think that sort of describes your work. Do you agree with that? I, mean, I, I agree like... with that. And by the way, and I, I love Leonard Cohen because, because I really feel that many times we try to kind of uh, have this uh, narrative of, uh, that we can overcome and we're winners. And, but basically, you know, life is a losing game. Like we, we live, <laughs> we die, our loved ones are going to die. You know, who are we kidding? So, so it's all about kind of uh, losing uh, gra- gra- graciously. This sounds like uh, like the sort of insight that the son of of a Holocaust survivor uh, might have had a lifetime to contemplate. Tell us about that background. How, how did that bring you to where you are? Yeah, well, my parents were both uh, Holocaust survivors, and they were untypical Holocaust survivors in the sense that uh, my mother had lost her entire family in a very young age. So basically, she never grew up uh, in a functioning family. So the idea was that the 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 grown-ups were always the the evil ones, the bad ones, like like in a Dickens story, you know, there were the people in the orphanage trying to steal their food and stuff. So so the idea is that it's not like when you're a teenager and you rebel against your parents, but you know deep inside that they love you and they're right. You rebel against people that you know deep inside you that they hate you and they're wrong, you know. So so she kind of remained a child all her life because she never reached a point where she understood that the world was really trying to, to care for her. And and when I grew up, I felt very much that I, I was being raised. It was a little bit like, I guess in some sense, like a a, a girl a, a, a raising her doll, you know, in a, good, <laughs> in a good way, you know, in a good way, in the sense that, you know, that, uh, for example, uh, uh, with my parents, they always backed me up. So the idea was, that, let's say, if I, I would say I hate school and my mother would say, okay, it's only the third grade, the first one would be great. Don't go to school the third grade and we will write a very long letter saying that you were in hospital having a <laughs> kidney transplant, you know. And, and, uh, and the idea was that, 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 uh, that kind of all the time my parents said, you know, the important thing is that you be kind of a good human being. And if you be an educated one or if you will have the same political views that we have or the same beliefs, it's optional. But just, you know, just kind of a, all the time know what, what you think is right, fight for it, all the time know what you're passionate about. They were always kind of uh, raising us more to be uh, authentic than to be uh, anything else. And they did have rules, but the rules were really like my favorite rule was that uh, if it rains, you don't have to go to school. You don't go to school <laughs> because because my mother said, with all due respect, they don't teach you something important enough to get wet for. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's, yeah. That seems like a very wise thing. Yeah, and, and my father, on the other hand, was the most optimistic and trusting and loving person, and and which is a strange thing when you're a Holocaust survivor who survived by hiding in a hole in the ground for more than six hundred days, and and uh, had lost his his kid sister, you know, who was tortured to death but refused to say where he was hiding. So with all this, you would think that somebody would be very suspicious. But my father always said that, it's, that life is that the important thing in life is the order of the actions. So he said, yeah, you know, when I was a kid, like everybody was trying to kill me and I suffered from persecution. But since then, it got better. So I'm only inclined to think that maybe it will get even better. 
you know? So the whole idea was that, okay, we started with the Holocaust right. and now it's better and what's next? Things you are know? looking up yeah, every day. They're going to give go us uh, free, free cupcakes and right. hugs, you know? So since you mentioned the Holocaust, one of my favorite parts of this new collection is an email exchange that's woven throughout between the owner of an escape room in Tel Aviv, which there actually are. I kept seeing them on the Google Maps when I was there a few weeks ago, and the son of a Holocaust survivor who wants to take her there on Holocaust Remembrance Day. But since it's a day of mourning, all the businesses are closed. And there's an absurdist nature of this, but it actually seems like such a perfect encapsulation of both like the Israeli culture around these days and then the absurdity of escape rooms as it is. And just sort of how even just the idea of a Holocaust survivor in an escape room, I mean, how, do you, how does that come to you? Well, first of all, you know, being a, a son of Holocaust survivor, I always seemed that it always seemed to me that Holocaust Memorial Day was the most difficult day for my parents. And the, the idea was not only was it difficult, but you could not see a sitcom on TV. Right. You know, you couldn't escape it because you opened the TV and there were more horrible things and they wouldn't do, do sports shows and they wouldn't do anything. And I w- remember like, you know, my father smoking all the time. And basically it was really like kind of waiting for it to be over. And the memory of the Holocaust always lived with him. It's not like as if he needed this. It's Every day was Holocaust Memorial Day, you know, we lost... A, a members of his family, he had uh, huge traumas, but it was like just like this this one day of punishment, you know, as if they were punished, as, as if they said that you, there's not one corner where you, you go and you could escape your past. So, so the idea of this this a guy who wants to take his mother in Holocaust Memorial Day to escape, you know, to see something about the stars and and not to just to think about the horrors that she's gone through, kind of created the the leverage point for his argument. And the moment that he started started arguing, it came to this thing that is very, very common in Israel, is this kind of a, I call it the, the Eurovision of victimhood, <laughs> where everybody <laughs> tries to, to say, to belittle the suffering of others. You know, it's like, you know, the, the Jews, the, the Sephardic Jews that were prosecuted in Iraq, and the, the Ashkenazi Jews will tell them, ah, but you can't compare it to the Holocaust. And the Palestinian who will talk about uh, their pains, they will say, oh, this is pain, this is nothing, you know. It's like almost these kind of competitions where you show your scars and totally immersed in your pain, but to win, you have to totally shut yourself to other people's pain and disregard it, you know. So so this is really the dynam- dynamic behind it. And all the stuff that I wrote, it was some kind of an exaggeration of things that I actually saw, you know. You know, it could be not not necessarily in my family, but a lot of the uh, political exploitation of the memory of the Holocaust or the political exploitation of other suffering, you know, of Jews saying, you know, we grew up seven people in a, a small uh, tent and they uh, sprayed us with DDT, with uh, anti-pests, uh, and they didn't treat us well. And But usually when do they say it? When they caught you embezzling money, you know? And when when do Israel talk about the Holocaust when we bombed some 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 place in Gaza, you know? And you really say, you know, you it's not to the point, you know. It's like as if you know the teacher will will catch me uh, cheating in an exam, and I would say to her, you know, I'm very short and I have very big front teeth, and it's very <laughs> difficult to get a date when I was a child. <laughs> and when I dance slow with the girls in the fourth grade, you know, I just reach their teeth, and they don't even have teeth. And it's so horrible. But she asks you why you were cheating in the exam. You know, could you please <laughs> refer like a, to what you were asked? A great reason. Though. Right. Your suffering justifies the whole thing. So kind of listening to you talk reinforces this, this thing that's always, or one of the things that's always fascinated me about you, which is kind of like 
the precise angle at which you stood to the rest of Israeli society. So to give a really crude and very, very brief history lesson. So here is Israel as a country, right? First generation uh, literary giants come along and they talk about the founding of the state. And then second generation, the Amos Ozes and David Grossman's come along and they have complicated narratives. And all of a sudden, they start looking at the Palestinians and other issues and they get much more into it. And then you come along and for decades and decades and decades feel like something that's totally out of left field. In fact, I think that only, it's fair to say that only recently, I mean, you won the Sapir Prize, the greatest literary prize in Israel just now, right? Like, yeah, for, the, for Flower already. Right. On the other hand, when you travel around the world in, in Europe and, and here in the States, you're a, a, a major kind of international literary beloved uh, celebrity. How do you feel about your place in literature? Do, do you ever stop to think about this? Does I, how strange it is that I could go to New York and everyone's like, oh, my God, it's the greatest writer. And in Israel, it's like, well, you know, I'm a soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I never think about it, and I must say that in Israel, I get a, a, a lot of love all the time in a, in a crazy amount, you know, but I never got it from the literary circles. You know, I get it from people, you know, I think for me, like, for me, it's amazing that I go on taxis and taxi drivers read my books. <laughs> you know, I don't think, I, I don't think the taxi ride, the drivers read a lot of fiction, you know. And they, and they talk to me about my stories and they say, you know, you have write short, short stories. So sometimes when there is a, I stop in a red light, I can grab a story before it turns green. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I think that for me, the need to write was never the need to show people the way, you know, it was the need to communicate and, and to kind of try to be uh, earnest and sincere about about my fears and, and faults. And in this sense, I really, I, Israel is like a womb. You know, it's really, it's amazing because it's a place where I can, you know, I, I can get stopped in, in the street by, by an eight-year-old kid. And he say, oh, I love your book. And say, yeah, but, but you don't read all the stories. You said, oh, yeah, I read the story. <laughs> I read this, this woman that every time she puts a, a finger in a, a vagina and licks them just to see if her friends came. And I say, yeah, uh, you know, you're not supposed to read right. those stories. You're eight. <laughs> you know, you're eight, right? He yeah. says, ah, I, I see movies in YouTube. You know? <laughs> so, 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 so I, I, I really feel that, that there's something great there. And the fact that I, I was never kind of uh, embraced by, by the literary circle it always kind of seemed to me fair, you know, because I think that sometimes when it comes to, I was very surprised when I got the the Sapir Prize because I always thought that, you know, that you should give the prize to the people who don't get all this love. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not fair to get all this love and prizes too. And I think that there are many writers who really go on on this quest to say something very complicated and elaborate that very few people will be able to connect to. And, they, and if you do that, you know, it's important. It's an important work. And, I feel that my stories were always kind of designed as some kind of a layered cake that 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 you can go really, really deep into them and you know and you can really think about life and your existence. But if you don't want to, you can just stay at the plot and it's funny and crazy and it's okay. So it's kind of a product that that it's you know, it's it's like, you know, you they don't give a a, a good hot dog, hot dog a Michelin star. Right. You know, it's a although you know, I, I think Thinking about about the way that that your work has developed, so I, I would put you in, in this group of, of writers, and again, I think Kafka is very much there, and maybe someone you know more recently, someone like the French great writer Boris Vian, who have these like very short, very energetic, very explosive, very loaded ideas, existentially kind of heavy. 
uh, writing that comes in very kind of short and punchy, um, you know, frames. Uh, now, here's the thing about all these writers. They all died very young. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. They, n- none of them wrote after 35 or 40. And, and you kept on writing, and this, this young person's energy uh, not only was maintained in your writing, but actually it was sort of like transformed into something that keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and darker and darker and darker while still maintaining that kind of, you know, vibrancy that it had earlier on. Do you stop? Do you ever stop to think about it? Do you ever finish a collection nowadays and be like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm 52, that these themes have gotten different? The strange thing is that most of the things that I do, like let's say when you finish writing a collection, it's things that I hardly notice. It's like, you know, I need to tour to understand that I finished writing a, a book because it's not like a novel. You know, you, you write stories all the time. And sometimes when, when the publicity is just something, it's kind of something that is half an harassment and half a tweet. But, <laughs> but, but you don't really feel that you completed anything. You feel that kind of life keeps on going. And, and I think for me, it's always like the hardest uh, question. Like, I hope he's not going to hear it, but uh, I was uh, having a lunch with, with my agent two, two days ago, and he asked me, so what's your next project? And I always, people, when people do that, I always say, oh, fuck, you know, I should have. And I always kind of make up something. And many times, it's not that I make up, like, it's like something that was in my mind, but there are so many things in my mind, you know? To say, my next project is holding you in my arms and telling you how much you weigh. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do right you now. No, he's so Stand skinny. Up. He's so skinny. <laughs> he would love it. <laughs> but uh, it would be no challenge. So I can hold him with one arm. Yeah. So I told him about the fact that I want to, to write a story about uh, this long story about my mother is starting to have dementia. And uh, and it's both like very, very sad, but also in a strange way, like, you know, you have those people who say, I can't see her anymore. She's not the same person. But I actually say, I see some things in her that it, it were harder to notice when she didn't have right. dementia. And, and, uh, and, and all her life, I think that her past had burdened, burdened her, you know, because of the Holocaust. And now most of the time she doesn't remember it. And, you know, and she doesn't, she doesn't remember my name, but she, and sometimes she thinks I'm her father or her husband or, or brother or, but, uh, but, but she always knows that I like her, you know, and she seems to be even kind of more happy than she used to be. And she, and she kind of uses, leverages the past that she never had because let's say there is a piano in her home. And one day she said to me, you know, the bad thing with this dementia that I forgot how to play the piano. All those years of playing, uh, you know, Chopin and Bach, she never knew how to play piano. But now she kind of, re- kind of, she reconstructs how she forgot to do something that she really enjoyed, and and there is something like very beautiful and confusing about it. So when I talked to him, I told him that I want to write this story about this guy that, uh, in the same time, his mother goes through dementia. And when my mother goes through dementia, like you know, she said to me, uh, "We bought her a new bed that you can." Present goes up and down, and she says, uh, "You know, I don't like that bed so much." And I said to her, "Why?" And she said, "I don't, I don't know if you know, it was uh, the the bed of the president of the U.S. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I don't like to sleep in other people's bed. I can still st- smell him from the sheets, you know, through the sheets, and." And, you know, and she says all those kind of things. And I, I understand what she's saying. She's saying, like, this bed is too fancy for me. And, you know, but but I so I, I was saying to my agent, how I have this story about this guy that he takes care of his mother. And the more 
the demented she become the 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 less the word around makes sense you have hurricanes and the social uh, systems crash and, and at some stage uh, his, his mother starts saying that she's god and he thinks it's another part of her dem- dementia but then he realizes that his mother is really god <laughs> and when as she gets demented the word is, begins <laughs> to fall apart you know and uh, <laughs> And he says, that's amazing. When do you think you can deliver it? And, you know, and then use it. By the time <laughs> I have a conversation with another person, I say some other thing. And in the end, I write something and or not. Or. One of the interesting layers about your work is that you seem to be very preoccupied with what it is that you're doing, right? If you create a car crash, this is something you wrote about in Tablet, and then it appears um, sort of a more fleshed out version in, in the new collection. What does it mean if you write a scene, a story with a car crash? Are you murdering these people? Have you created this? Have you caused the car crash? And, you know, the high holidays are approaching, and I'm, I'm so curious. Do you feel the weight of all the things that you've created? I mean, can you escape that at all? It doesn't seem like authors typically are preoccupied with that, but you really, really are. No, uh, for me, it's not a, it's not a weight. It's like a, the balloons in up, you know? It's the opposite of weight. Yeah, I think it's, for me, there is something about writing that, that uh, it's just kind of a way of reminding me that uh, I can yearn and I can regret and I can look for goodness, you know, even when there are times when I just feel very depressed. So when I look at my stories, it's for me, it's always like this kind of uh, recommendation letters for humanity, you know, saying, you know, we do all those horrible things, but actually we mean well, you know, read this story, this guy is a horrible father, but he really loves his son, you know. And I think that it's really this uh, uh, this thing. It, it's always this difference between the emotions in, in, inside us, you know, and and the outcome of it. You know, I was I was just saying to somebody in, in Britain that it's it's really like it's this. I don't know. Guy comes to his girlfriend, and says, "Oh, you know, all the time. I don't know. I want to show her I love her. I, I want to have sex with her in such a kind of new and creative ways that nobody ever, ever had." sex with his girlfriend and in the end you end up like spilling her coffee on her laptop you know and and people look at the, the, my stories and they say oh it's stories about clumsy people inconsiderately spilling a, a <laughs> coffee on the laptop and I say no 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 it's stories about people who want to give their girlfriend the best orgasm in the world you it's know stories about love yeah what is it like for you when the book has come out in Hebrew already, right? It had a different title based on actually the, the story about the um, the escape room, and now it's coming out in English. Is it funny to have a whole new group of readers experiencing? You, you get to sort of experience it a second time to see everyone reading it. Is it different in English? It's a, Yeah, it's different. You know, I must say that, you know, even like going through the translation process, it's very, very different. You know that there are titles of stories in English that have different titles in Hebrew, and for example, Flower Ready, uh, the idea in Hebrew is called Don't Do It. And, uh, and it's a story about a, a, a father and a son that they see somebody who's about to jump off a building and the, the father tries to stop him while the child tries to encourage him to do it because he thinks he's a superhero. Mm-hmm. So the child says to him, Flower Ready, and the, and the father says, Don't do it. And the, and the truth is that when I chose the name, I kind of said Cody don't do it and then when the story appeared in the uh, New Yorker Deborah Treisman uh, said to me why did you call it don't do it and I said yeah because this is what the guy down, down says and she said yeah but the kid says flower ready why don't you call it flower ready and when she said it it made perfect sense and I said it's such a better name but in Hebrew 
flower ready means the oof which means fuck off yeah. you know <laughs> so so i won't call this collection fuck off but to call it, call it flower ready it's really great and on the other hand english english is so much more flowery and delicate <laughs> but on the other hand there is a story he called one gram short about this guy who looks for a, a bit of marijuana a bud uh, just so he can impress a girl that he's in love with and in hebrew it's called perach leva zahav the god the god heart flower and the reason that it's called the god heart flower because it's a, it's a story they always tell to children about uh, this child that his mother was about to die and the only thing that could he, uh, heal her is the god heart flower and in israel if you want somebody to give you some pot you say give me a flower not give me a bud so so it's this guy who looks for this magical marijuana flower or bud this is a much more beautiful name than one gram short which sounds like you know like a very small scale not doing so well drug dealer you know why are we dealing in grams you know when are you going to sell kilos my son you know you never get anywhere this way breaking <laughs> sort of bad so every time when you translate you see things that are different and another thing that is different is the way that people react to stories and i can tell you a funny thing is that the, the first time i read the the story uh, the next to the last time i was shot out of a cannon I read it in a synagogue in Miami. And I read it in a synagogue in Miami. And it's a story about this guy that his wife dumped him and his little child doesn't want to speak with him. And he, he cleans like a elephant crap in a, in a circus. And all his life is horrible. And, you know, and all those like 300 elderly people were sitting there and listening. Uh, uh, some of them attentively, some less so, but they were listening. And then uh, 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 the, uh, he's in the circus and they say to him, if we shoot you out of a cannon, we'll give you 400 shekels. And they shoot him out of a cannon. And when he comes back, because he did something wrong, they say, we'll only give you 200 shekels. And the moment they say, we'll only give you 200 shekels, you hear all the audience go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I say, now I know I'm reading for, for Jews. <laughs> for Jews. You know, <laughs> because when his life dumped him, you didn't care, you know, because he didn't take the car or the apartment. But when he, they cheat him out of 200 shekels, everybody go, whoa, you know. So I think that this kind of, the audience is really kind of a, a create the meaning of the story because, because the story is always a dialogue and it depends who you're talking, you're speaking with. So you started writing, um, it, it was a very different world, right? It was, it was the 90s. Uh, it was a time of sort of hope. There was peace process going on in Israel. Everything seemed like it was, you know, moving in the right direction. Things are very different now. Do you see the audience response to your work being different? Do, do you think the things that you mean to them now are somehow different than what you meant to them when it was 1996 and everyone was sort of happy and chill? Ninety-six, we were not happy anymore because they assassinated right. Rabin and Netanyahu got voted. It was 94 <laughs> that, that we had a, a blast, you know. It's funny, again, you know, because it's not me. It's like, you know, and it changes from people. I, I'm going to digress, you know. It's like, you know, I remember the first time I came to Russia, my first Russian translator was uh, like six foot three and a bodybuilder. And when he came, he hugged me and he says, oh, Edgar, Edgar, you are so much like your stories. And I said, how so? And he said, short, very short. And, and I, so, I'm, so I'm saying again, you know, it's not, it's just what people say. But what I feel is that, is that when I started writing, people kind of recognize some kind of hope in my stories. And they say, yeah, this is what we're going to talk about. And this is what life's going to be like. And, 
And now when they read my story, they say, oh, you know, it reminds me of those times that we thought that this is what life going to be about. <laughs> and this is what... So, so, so it's funny how, how the, 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 my stories, I write them now, but they resonate some kind of a possible alternative present. It's like steampunk, you know? Yeah. It's like when people read it, it's, I, 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 you know, I meet people, Israel is overseas, and they say, you know, whenever I read your stories, I miss home. But then I go to Israel and I see it's not like in your stories. <laughs> <laughs> Eckhart Herrett, thank you so much. The book is Fly Already or Fuck Off, if you the alternative <laughs> title that we're, we're pushing for, maybe for the reprint. You can get it anywhere books are sold. And it's such a treat to be with you. Oh, thank thank you. you. It was fun. That was Eckhart Herrett chatting with me and Liel about his latest collection of stories, Fly Already. Time for some pod biz. Unpacking the Book, the series I host with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum, is starting back up this month. On March 28th, I will be at the Jewish Museum in conversation with authors Jordan Salama and Elizabeth Graver about Mizrahi and Sephardic diaspora journeys. Then in April, also at the Jewish Museum, I'll be talking with Rabbi Diana Fursco and author Maurice Samuels about what their new books tell us about the continued rise of anti-Semitism from Dreyfus to today. In May, we're heading to Zoom for a virtual conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about their new books. You can find all of that info and more at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. Our second Beautifully Jewish Craft Along is underway. To join our growing community, head to tabletm.ag slash beautiful. I also wanted to share this delightful review on Apple Podcasts. For this non-American goy, Unorthodox is a weekly compulsion. Three very different characters deliver no-holds-barred perspectives from the Jewish part of people's identities. Well, in Liel's case, Jewish slash American slash Israeli slash his own universe. All are welcome and all can contribute. Why only four stars? Sometimes I can't keep up with the spoken delivery speeds, a problem when you've become a global phenomenon, as you have. Well, non-American Goy, we love you, even if we talk too fast for you. The rest of you, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And you know Joshua Molina will be reading it, so make it a good one. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Listeners, you nearly broke our voicemail line this week. You called us so much and we have a backlog. We're going to we're going to work through the backlog over the coming weeks, but some really really terrific stuff uh this week. Our friend Matt called in to talk a little bit about the Danny Shapiro interview where she discovered some weird stuff when she took a DNA test. Hi unorthodox. This is Matt in Seattle. I just listened to Stephanie's interview with Danny Shapiro. There are many of us, I think, for whom the process kind of went in reverse, that we discovered hidden Jewish heritage through DNA tests. I can only imagine this has happened to many other people. It happened to me. I received, in, quite a few years ago now, a really unexpected DNA result, which led me to many other investigations and down many other paths, with, which eventually resulted in my conversion. So... It's a strange thing going on with this stuff. Thank you for that conversation and just really appreciate the work you've done and are doing. Matt, welcome home. Good to have you as the fellow Jew that you sort of always were. And now for another crazy DNA test story. We go back to the listener line. Hi, all The DNA story really spoke to me and where my head is at today. 
my DNA makeup was as I expected when I had it tested, but it was actually the connecting paperwork from Ancestry.com that started sending me into a shock. <laughs> Through marriage announcements and the census, I found out that my grandpa had not just been married once, but twice before my grandma. He actually had a son and daughter with one of his wives, and so now this little California girl has all these relatives in Highland Park, New Jersey. Well, it's nice to have lots of cousins. <laughs> Christmas is about to get real interesting. This one comes from an old friend of the show, someone who, in fact, was at the very first Israel meetup when I was there uh, a couple years ago. And, and uh, paid she- for our own drinks. <laughs> Bought everyone else drinks there. Thank you, Jennifer. Come on. Leave me alone. I think I picked up some of the tab. <laughs> she was calling in to respond to the letter we had on from, from a listener last week who wanted to know if it was okay to talk uh, about someone having a Jewish accent. Hey, J. Crew. This is Jen Richler here. I am a native Montreal Jew, but have lived in the U.S. for like the last 20 or more years. But about Jewish accents, there is actually a Montreal Jewish accent. This is not just a matter of opinion, but actually something that has been studied by at least one linguist um, at McGill University. And uh, the Montreal Jewish accent has several features. It has a sort of sing-songy, lilting intonation, the sort of da-da-da-da-da-da. But probably the other things to note are the pronunciation of certain sounds. So vowels, especially the I sound in a word like sigh, comes out sounding a little more like soy, um, a little New York-y. And another one, I don't know if this is unique to Montreal Jews, but I'm pretty sure it is. I would have to check in with a Montreal Gentile. But the word gas is actually pronounced gaz, uh, which sounds ridiculous to me now when I hear it. But for the first 20 years of my life, I would say that I was going to fill up with gas. The only one I think I have retained really of my from my Montreal Jewish accent is the hard G sound. So in words like hanger and singer, I actually don't know how else you would say those. I guess non-Montreal people swallow their G a little bit more. This was brought to my attention when I lived in Ann Arbor for a number of years, and my non-Jewish friends really enjoyed hearing me say the name of the deli, Zingerman's. They thought that I said it really funny, and I didn't really get why. Anyway, there you have it. Always good to get the Canadian version of things. That always humanizes things. And by the way, when we are in Detroit, we might make a side trip to Ann Arbor to go to Zingerman's. Zinger, Zingerman's. 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 But, but the point is, her the G is hard when Wholeheartedly you're, when you're Jewish. Zingerman's. And finally, a slew of correspondence, uh, voicemail and uh, and print email, uh, about the question, what are the great performances of Jews by Gentile actors? This, of course, prompted by the death of, uh, of the terrific Valerie Harper, who had played Rhoda Morgenstern. Uh, first, to the listener line. Hi, this is Anne from the Philadelphia area, and I love your show and am dedicated listener. Um, You asked about non-Jewish people playing Jewish roles, and you didn't mention Wendy McClellan Covey, who plays Beverly Goldberg on The Goldberg. What a stunning job she does. Thanks for all you do for the Jewish and non-Jewish community. I've never watched The Goldbergs, but but I kind of want to. I just want to see. I want to see the performance of a character named Beverly Goldberg. But, but Wendy McClendon Covey is amazing. She was in. Have you guys seen Bridesmaids? It's basically, it's a like Jew. it's like such a fun. Yeah, I've seen Bridesmaids. Yeah. Who was she in Bridesmaids? One of the bridesmaids. One of the bridesmaids. One of the bridesmaids. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then there was a lot more on Gentiles playing Jewish roles. 
Our listener, uh, Andre Obieras, wrote in to say, I have to say that it's Rod Steiger who played Reb Saunders in The Chosen, the movie based on the novel by Chaim Potok. Interesting. Mr. Steiger was raised Lutheran, but plays the Rebbe-like character so well, I actually thought he was Jewish. Andre, there are few movies that have done a worse job of portraying Jews than The Chosen. Robbie Benson is such a Shonda, but I have clearly blocked out this very fine performance by Rod Steiger because the other performances were so atrocious. That That is a great novel made into a bad movie. Thank you for. I know. Uh, I always loved the movie for this exact reason. <laughs> that all like the Jews face. It was like, like this. almost funny. Like it's a parody of what the book was. <laughs> Guys, you was... come to me. Here's our next letter from Howard Wasserman. It's all about the Godfather. Hyman Roth, a fictionalized Meyer Lansky, played by Irish Catholic Art Carney. Mo Green, a fictionalized Bugsy Siegel, is played by Italian Alex Rocco. All right, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, The Godfather is some serious pan ethnic casting, and and we missed so many others. Uh, according to our wonderful listeners who wrote in to remind us of Daniel Craig in both Defiance and Munich, in both of which he kills people on behalf of the Jewish people. The great Brendan Fraser in School Ties. That is uh, a great Jewish role. That the, is a the great Jewish, Jewish prep role. school boy, the closeted Jew in and, School Ties. And, Go Brendan and, Fraser. And he sort of played it well. Yeah, uh, Joe Montana and Beam North in Liberty Heights, uh, and. Five-ish Finkel. Little known fact. <laughs> Little known fact, actually a Gentile. Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our listener, Ben Ring, who wrote in to, to tell us about Joe Mantegna and B.B. Newirth. But I had a little tickle in the back of my head that said, I think B.B. Newirth is a Jewess. And our friend Wikipedia, as well as several um, more Jewishly learned websites that have written about her, confirms confirm that in fact, although she seems to have been raised with, she insists she had little Jewish education. Her education was all in classical ballet. She was, in fact, the product of Jewish Heritage, heritage, ancestry, humans. So uh, B.B. North, future Jew of the week. Um, and two more or two more that we'll get to this week. Uh, our listener Ksenia Tserkovskaya wrote in to say, over the weekend, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, trying to distract myself from the complete Armageddon happening all around the world, including on my own doorstep. Unsurprisingly, that didn't work, but I still managed to have some gory fun. And as to Jews, I thought Pacino's Marvin Schwartz was quite satisfactory. Yep. I agree. Me too. You too? Yep. So we both saw the movie? Yes. Did you see it, Stephanie? I did not. You should go see it. It's good quality Tarantino. And our listener, David Weiner, wrote in echoing what many people in the Facebook group said, which is, come on, John Churchuro in Barton Fink and others and others. John Churchuro is one of those guys like Alan Alda who, honorary Jew. I, yeah. I, don't you think? Yeah. Like, right now. He plays Jewish better than most of us. He really one does. of us. It is one utterly seamless. Us. There is no se- – see, with Pacino, there's still a moment where I'm like, this is a great Italian actor, a great Italian method actor putting his talents toward the Jewish people. I'm not even Italian. It's Pacino playing Pacino right. playing a Jew. Playing a guy named Schwartz. With Churchuro, there's complete submersion in the – it is pure Yiddishkeit, pure Hebraic quality. Thank you, listeners. Write to us, unorthodoxatabletmag.com, or even better, leave us a message, 914-570-4869. The newest Jewish encyclopedia, our guide to all things Jewish and Jewish, is out just in time for the high holidays. Pre-order your copy online or at your favorite local bookseller, and you could win a Zabar's gift basket. To enter, forward a copy of your receipt or confirmation email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And let me tell you, you've never had days of awe quite like this days before. Of you can find all the info on how to pre-order at tabletmag.com slash newish Jewish. Guys, don't start 5780 without this book. This will sweeten your new year. 
We will be doing lots of live shows coming up to support the book and to support all of you and ourselves. The next one coming up is in Stamford, Connecticut, September 19th. It is free and a mere few miles from New York City. So it should be mobbed. And that's without even mentioning that our guests are the great Jewish rabbi and teacher Joseph Telushkin and as our Gentile of the week, Farouk Kathwari, who is the chief executive officer of Ethan Allen and is also a Muslim immigrant who is very involved in interfaith work. So we're going to have a sweet party. And the two of them will bring peace to the world. Yep. We're gonna right there on stage. On stage. You'll be there to witness it. It'll be and furniture. Also, Mark and furniture. Also, Mark will be played by John Tertour. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, the night before that, September 18th, we are at the Manhattan JCC for our book launch event. It's going to be really, really fun. You can find that info and info about all of our tour dates at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. And that will be a party. Yeah. John Tertour is playing all of us. And finally, there are three things you can do for us. One is come on September 18th to our launch party at the Manhattan JCC. Then for a double dose, come up to Stanford the next night for that live show. And then call in your apology story, atonement story, teshuva story. We're still taking calls. This is the last week we're taking calls for your voice on our annual Yom Kippur episode. Again, the listener line, 914-570-4869. Executive producer Joshua Michael Yehoshua Cross with a K you quarterbacked our fund drive this year. The fund drive is over. So people listen up just to hear how successful we were and how how proud we are, how chuffed, as the Brits would say. Josh, what stats can you give us? It's kind of amazing because we thought we were lagging, but y'all came through. I mean, we were lagging and then... But we thought we were gonna. Yeah. And then... And then we didn't. And now we're chuffed. So going into the last time we told people about it, we had 460 donors. We finished with 840. Holy cow. <laughs> That's insane. That's fantastic. And you guys surprised and, us because... And the goal we wanted to top last year, which was 600-something donors. 660. So we were looking for 666, crushed of it, course. baby. We crushed Destroyed it. Destroyed it. Yeah. Um, 240 of which gave over uh, 180, which means they're all getting copies of the book. They're getting the newest Jewish? And I think they're getting it soon, right, Yes, Steph? those are hot off the press. You'll be getting those soon. They're in the air right now. They're being drone dropped right yeah. now. Yeah. Awesome. And the total even. Yeah. Guys, you cracked 70 grand. It, it, it was sitting at 69 and I was like, nice. Bring it. And then it cracked over 70 and it's amazing, which, you know, we've all said what that lets us do is it lets me send somebody to Chicago to report a piece or almost never have a phone call unless we want to. Or Which means we get them into studios. I mean, the important thing there is when they're on the phone, they sound worse. When we get them into studios, which costs a few shekels, they sound like they're in our living room. Or even get an engineer to go to them, which is also another like a weird, you have to find the person, you have to pay them. I mean. It's really going to change the game, I think, for us. And you guys can keep demanding bigger stuff from us. Now. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's the that's the benefit of donating. Exactly. You're officially yeah, yeah, yeah. shareholders. I mean, it's like Green Bay. Yeah, exactly. It's it's community owned now, basically. Yes. Jake Ruth, thank you so much. Of course, your contribution is tax deductible any old time because we are part of a 501c3. And so uh, keep throwing bucks at us. But for now, we're not going to ask anymore. We're just going to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we are working on the Yom Kippur apology episode. We are working on an episode about uh, the newest Jewish encyclopedia about our book. And then, of course, we have how many live events do we have? If you count the book appearances and the full live shows, Josh, how many events are we looking We've at? for 30 through the spring. Through the spring. Wow. That, that's a more accurate number than I would have given. We're going to meet thousands of fans, old and new, in 5780. J. Crew, thank you so much for your generosity, and we wish you a, a happy and sweet new year that is almost upon us and more unorthodox to come.
So I was at my book club and I was chatting with a young woman there who I'd gone to college with and she was asking about my podcast. And I said, you know, it's called Unorthodox and each week we have a Jewish guest and a Gentile of the week. And, you know, everyone does the polite laugh that they do when I tell them that. And I happen to say that we're always looking for Gentiles. We are lousy with Jews. Some of our episodes have two Jews, but it seems like we're always looking for Gentiles and having trouble finding them. And she turned to me and said, well, my father is a Presbyterian pastor and he just wrote a horror novel. And I said, please give me your father's number right away. What you're about to hear is my interview with Henry Brinton, the senior pastor of Fairfax Presbyterian Church in Fairfax, Virginia. Pastor, it's great to talk to you. Stephanie, so glad to be with you today. You know, when we have a member of the clergy, no matter what faith, we always ask them to talk about their journey, just sort of how they got there. And we found that those stories are usually deeply moving and quite surprising. So I'd love it if we could start off with your journey. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church and uh, attended services and youth group along with uh, my family and my friends and uh, had, a, had a good upbringing in the Christian faith but never gave a single moment's thought to serving the church as a member of the clergy. That changed for me uh, as a sophomore at Duke University. I had um, been studying biology, and uh, that was going okay. And then I began to take some courses in Scripture. And it was as though the world went from black and white to color, being able to study the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures with professors who gave me new insights into these stories that I had heard growing up, it just excited me. But the biggest turning point came when my college roommate brought home a brochure from his religion class, and it was an invitation to attend the Duke summer semester in Israel. And I thought, that sounds fascinating, and went to Israel in the summer of 1980 for a month's study in Jerusalem, and then a month on an archaeological dig in the Galilee with uh, two professors, Eric and Carol Myers. And that experience uh, really changed my life. I discovered for the first time that all of the stories, all of the drama, all of the insights of the scriptures were based on things that were real. There was something about being in the land of Israel eating, observing, hiking, talking, breathing the air, interacting with people, it suddenly made it all very real to me. Uh, most of the students uh, on the archaeological dig were Christians and Jews, but we also met Muslims and people of, of other faiths. And that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of working together towards the common good. And so I came back from that summer uh, excited about the possibility of being uh, a Presbyterian clergy person who took the Bible very seriously, not literally, but very seriously, and also a, a pastor uh, very committed to interfaith relations. And the Christmas after, I was at my home church and I was invited to do a program on my time in Israel. And so I showed the congregation my slides, little uh, cardboard squares with a bit, little bit of film in the middle. And sitting in the front row was a young woman named Nancy Freeborn. And she liked what uh, she was seeing and hearing. She appreciated my uh, enthusiasm, my passion for this topic. And we started dating and eventually were married. 
Nancy and I became the parents of uh, Sadie, your friend Stephanie, and uh, son Sam. And so I can say that that summer in Israel changed my life, not only professionally, but personally as well. And uh, I'll always be grateful for that. It's so funny because the two professors that you are talking about who led the trip are Eric and Carol Myers. And when I got to college, I thought I was going to be an English major because I thought, you know, I like to read, I like to write. And my own personal journey was was I grew up on Long Island, which was overwhelmingly Jewish, my, my town at least. And I, I sort of knew that that wasn't completely normal, uh, wasn't common everywhere. But that was what I had experienced. And then, of course, I got to Duke. And I sort of realized that I had grown up in a very specific place and in a very specific type of community. And that was not the norm. And so I think I just signed up for a few religion courses because I sort of was thinking, oh, how interesting. You know, clearly religion plays a really important role in all aspects of our lives in ways we don't even really realize until we are sort of confronted with that. And so one of the first classes I took was Carol Myers' class, Women in Biblical Times. And it was eye-opening to sort of look at religious text as, as sort of literature, right? Finding the narratives of these women um, whose stories, there was a whole section of unnamed women. And so then I took Eric Myers' classes as well. And so they deeply changed the course of my life as well, which is so funny. Um, and when I graduated there, I think there were six religion majors my year and they were all going to divinity school and I was going to journalism school to continue also to study religion while I was there, which was very funny to me. The religion journalism connection is not a bad one. You don't seem to be like a regular pastor. You're a cool pastor. You write for the Huffington Post. You sort of make all these connections to modern day life. Your sermon on Easter sort of talked about the Beatles rumor that Paul was dead. Yes. Uh, yes. And I'm, I'm so curious because, you know, we're a Jewish podcast and there's a lot of talk about how rabbis can make their sermons more relevant, more easily, you know, connectable. And I'm so curious how you sort of decide what your sermons are going to be and how you try to keep those relevant in today's times. The sermon is not just a Bible lesson. It's not just getting up and telling people this is what this means, this is what that means. Uh, it needs to be connected to modern life. And I find that one of the most powerful ways to do that is to tell a story that brings the text to life, brings it to the life that we're living today. This is a practice that's been going on in Judaism for thousands of years. I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here since I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar, but I understand that uh, there are at least two forms of Midrash, Midrash Halakha, which is uh, related to the law, and then Midrash Agadah, which is story-based, narrative. And that's a, a form of biblical interpretation that has been used by rabbis over the years. It was used very effectively by Jesus himself in the parables he taught. Jesus would not get up and, and say to people, here's what the scripture means, but he would tell parables. He would say, the kingdom of God is like a sower sowing seed, and would tell the story of that sower and what the implications of that are. And so that's what I try to do in my, my preaching as well, often uh, using a contemporary illustration, an example from literature, from music, from the world we live in today that is going to bring the ancient scripture to life. My Easter sermon went back 50 years, and a rumor began flying around that Paul McCartney was dead. The Beatles press office denied the rumor. Paul McCartney himself said, no, I'm very much alive, but people still debated it. And that, to me, is a story that people of my generation remember, and I think uh, younger folks are interested in as well. And it was an excellent entree into a discussion of whether Jesus is alive 
and my sermon went into some of the different ways that I experienced the ongoing life of Jesus in our community and in the world. Something we hear a lot about and we sort of fret over in the Jewish community is the idea that synagogue membership is down and young people aren't joining their local synagogues. And, you know, how do we keep young Jews engaged? How do we keep them both coming to synagogue and also meet them on their level? And I'm so curious if that is something that you are dealing with as well. We, we certainly are faced with the exact same challenge, and, and I would love to say that we've cracked the code and figured it out. Organized religion is suffering from the same uh, challenges that many other organizations are, are suffering from. Membership in a wide variety of, of social organizations is down. But one thing I have discovered is that millennials do respond uh, to opportunities to serve their communities and to work for the common good. One of our newest members is a young woman who just joined the church last fall. And the reason she joined was because we work together with our interfaith community to house the homeless on cold winter nights. Each church or community of faith takes a week through the winter months, the coldest months, and uh, provides shelter and a meal for our homeless neighbors. And we will receive uh, as many as 70 guests in a given night. It's a, it's a serious endeavor. Well, this young woman was so excited by this opportunity that she not only joined the effort that week and ended up spending several nights in the church uh, hosting our homeless guests, but then became a member of the congregation, and she and her husband have become very active. Without that as being her entry point, I'm not sure she would have joined the church. So churches and other communities of faith that want to attract members of uh, the younger generation, need to uh, create these kinds of opportunities. And fortunately, those opportunities are consistent with some of our deepest beliefs as Christians, Jews, and Muslims. I also imagine you writing regularly for places like the Huffington Post, you coming out with this novel, City of Peace. That's also part of an effort to reach people where they are with the same types of messages you're giving in church. Exactly. There are you know, many people who will never darken the door of a church, probably not going to seek me out in Fairfax, Virginia. But I'm hoping this book, City of Peace, is going to have a wide readership and is going to engage people in these questions of what can we do to build bridges? What can we do to, to bring our, our fractured society together so that we can together alleviate some of the problems that we're facing and work for the common good? This, I think, is a, a format, a murder mystery uh, with a, a thriller dimension to it that uh, is going to be attractive to people. Uh, I've discovered in, in my ministry that you can't really change people's minds through argument. More often, people's minds are changed through exposure. And I think that's true for all of us. If we're exposed to a person of a different faith, a different nationality, a different culture, a different race, we learn something and we find our minds being changed. And so I hope my book will expose readers to uh, the challenges of uh, interfaith and intercultural work and how we can work together at the local level to um, make the world a better place. It's really an extension of the storytelling that I've done in my ministry, in my preaching, and in my teaching. And the particular driver for this book is a deep concern I have about the polarization 
of life in the United States and in the world today. Um, we are so fractured as a society, and there is so much hatred. And so my desire with this novel, City of Peace, is to explore these questions that uh, are so personal to me and to use storytelling as a way to engage people in this discussion. Narratives give us a window into a world that we might not have access to otherwise. And so uh, my attempt with the novel City of Peace is to um, draw people into the story of a pastor in a small town who is confronted with a tragedy and a threat, and he has to find a way to minister to his flock and care for his flock and the people around him in a very, very difficult situation, a, a situation of interfaith strife, a situation of threat from a, a terrorist group. And the protagonist in the book also had done an archaeological dig in Israel while he was in college. Could you tell us a little bit about the city of Sepphoris and the way that's woven in the book and also in your own experience? The protagonist is Harley Camden, who is a Methodist minister in Northern Virginia. And the story begins, he runs into an old friend, Leah Silverman, a Jewish woman that he met when he was on a Duke archaeological dig in 1985. Soon after, the town of Occoquan is hit by a terrible tragedy. The daughter of the local Iraqi baker, a young woman named Nora Bayati, is smothered in her bed. It's a shocking crime in the middle of this small town, and it sends the entire town reeling. But he does find some solace in his renewed friendship with his old classmate. And so on the 4th of July, uh, the two of them take a ride on a boat. And so if I could, I'd like to read a, a short passage, and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit more, more about the town of Sepphoris. Harley, you remember what our professor taught us about Sepphoris, right? You've got a role to play in making Occoquan just such a place. If we can't figure out how to live and work together like the people of Sepphoris, we've got no hope for the future. Any peace on earth has got to start in places like this. Harley sipped his beer and looked at the deep green leaves of the trees on the shoreline. Leah was really getting under his skin. Peace on earth? Who is she kidding? How can she be so naive? You need to be a bridge, she said, just like that bridge over the river. As a pastor, you have the challenge of making connections, bringing people together. So that's the end of that short excerpt, but it does introduce the town of Sepphoris. And Sepphoris is an amazing town, an amazing city, actually, in the Galilee region of Israel. And this is a site that Eric and Carol Myers excavated, those two Duke archaeologists, just a few years after I was there. And they made some amazing discoveries there. One of the uh, most striking of the finds was a mosaic of a woman in the Roman style. And there's a lot of reason to believe that she is a Jewish woman. This is remarkable because it began to point to the possibility that Sepphoris was a place where Jews and Romans in the first century found a way to get along. Now, this was a time of intense conflict. The Jewish rebellion uh, occurred in around the year 70, 
and uh, Rome responded by destroying the, the temple and much of the city of Jerusalem. There were various revolts throughout the, the region, and the, the Romans were terribly cruel and harsh in the way they would put down these revolts. So there was a lot of struggle going on. But somehow in Sepphoris, the residents found a way to live alongside the Romans, so much so that the town of Sepphoris became known as Irenepolis, which literally means city of peace. And because the Jewish community uh, endured there uh, through those years of conflict, it went on to become a major center of Jewish learning for the centuries that followed. And so Sepphoris inspires me in that it holds out the possibility that people of very different cultures, religions, races can live together, can work together, and find a way to be at peace with one another, which is something that our world today needs now more than ever. So do you see that, that idea of being a bridge? Is that something that's part of your life and a part of your work? It, it definitely is. Uh, the church I serve in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, is um, the Fairfax Presbyterian Church. And on the wall behind the pulpit is a large scripture verse. It's from the book of the prophet Isaiah. My house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. That scripture verse has been our guiding light for about 40 years now. It, it, it predates my pastorate. And it has been a challenge to us and an inspiration. How can we be a house of prayer for all peoples? How can we be a place where people gather in spite of their differences and work for the common good? And so we have tried to live that out through interfaith work. Uh, we've also uh, gotten very involved in uh, working on social justice issues uh, in an interfaith uh, social action group. Finding ways to work for the common good is critically important uh, to me personally and to the ministry of my congregation. So, Henry, before I let you go, I have you, I have a Presbyterian pastor on the line. The protagonist of your book is a Methodist minister. Neither of you are fathers. So could you give us like a quick cheat sheet? Like all we have are rabbis. It's pretty simple. You could be Orthodox or Reform. and We know what to call them. But I think people feel a little bit intimidated by not wanting to call someone of a different faith the wrong honorary. In the Catholic Church, we do have priests who go by the, the honorific father, and those clergy are single and celibate. In most Protestant denominations, we can marry, and uh, that's been a great joy for me to be married and uh, be able to have a family. And in the Protestant churches, different titles can be used, and, and no one is, is really preferable. We're, we're all ministers, so that's a perfectly fine label. The honorific tends to be the reverend. But on a more functional level, in a lot of our churches, we go by the term pastor. And pastor literally means shepherd. So we're the shepherds of the flock. Children will call me Pastor Henry, and, and that's totally fine. Some churches don't use first names, but I'm finding you know, more and more people are comfortable with their first name being used. So Pastor Henry as opposed to Pastor Brenton. The reason I made Harley Camden a Methodist had nothing to do with his particular theology, we Presbyterians and Methodists are very close to the theology we have and our view of Scripture. But for the sake of my novel, I had to have Harley Camden sent by his bishop to Occoquan. He had to be sent there against his will. And that would never happen in the Presbyterian Church. In the Presbyterian Church, 
we clergy are basically free agents and congregations call us to come and serve them. We don't have a bishop who sends us anywhere. Well, Pastor Henry, it is such a delight to chat with you and to learn a bit more about your journey. Thank you so much. You are welcome. That was my interview with Henry Brinton, senior pastor at Fairfax Presbyterian Church and contributor to the Huffington Post. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? Oh, do I have a mazel tov. So this week, I attended the wedding of my dear, dear friends, Amy and Daniel, who have been together for three administrations now. So they're coming together. It was a very joyous simcha. Wait, this is the Amy who works with your wife, right? uh, Correct. Oh, Uh, they are legendarily... They are big fans of the show, (laughs) wonderful human beings, and their wedding was a, a truly miraculous, marvelous, joyous affair. Mazel tov. Also mazel tov to our listener, Amy Rundle, who wrote to us, quote, Today I drove to the mikveh while listening to the newest episode. I went in, dunked, came out, and started my car again to continue listening to the episode, this time as a Jewish woman. I wanted to thank you for being part of this day and this journey. Truly a full-service podcast. Amy, nothing makes us happy. That is how to convert. Like, listen to the first 20 or 30 minutes as, as a Gentile, dunk, have some babka, towel off. And listen to the rest of it. And, and then, then, like, have a lot of, like, complaints about the rest <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> right. And then read us a note being like, I really didn't like the part where you said the thing. As a Jew, I prefer saran wrap. <laughs> also, a mazel tov to actor Jonah Hill, a future Jew of the week, on his engagement to be married. A mazel tov to my sister, Rachel, for turning 31, which is awesome. And uh, we love you dearly. And everyone in Chicago who walks by, my sister today should give her a high five. Her birthday was earlier this week. And finally, a mazel tov to former Starbucks chief executive officer, Howard Schultz, who ended the presidential bid that set America on fire. What will we do for the next year and a half of campaigning? So many broken hearts. Without Howard Schultz in the race. Howard, this frees you up to come on our show and talk about what it means to be an underperforming Jewish presidential candidate. <laughs> and bring coffee. I have a Mazel Tov in for Matt Sheeran of Matt and Matilda Sheeran. He has a Mazel Tov for his beautiful wife who is published. She wrote an article called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Steak Sandwiches. And he says, You guys will like this, I promise. It's also her birthday, so we're just like wrapping everything I'm up read together. This as soon as we get off the air. Wait, gentlemen prefer blondes and steak sandwiches? Yes, with mayo on them. I also have a family mazel tov to Sadie Cohen, my mom's cousin's daughter, Freya and Jeremy Cohen are her parents and they listen to the show and they are great. I wasn't able to get down to Austin for the bat mitzvah, but we are so excited for her. And I went to an amazing wedding this weekend. Kayla and Bryant, my very, very dear friends, um, had just like this wonderful Beautiful wedding. Still can't believe Kayla's not Jewish, but, you know, here we are. We can she can drive her. to the mikveh, listen yeah. for the first 20 minutes in there. <laughs> Mazel tov to all of you. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodoxtabletmag.com. Or better yet, call us, 914-570-4869. We have a scrupulously written and witty newsletter. You can subscribe by going to bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live. Write to us at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. And Josh will mm, talk to you about how to make that happen. Uh, if you want unorthodox swag, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Shirts, mugs, onesies, we got it all. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, associate produced by Sarah Fredman Ader, and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, and our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, but our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the Jews of Otis Israel in Duluth, Minnesota. We are thinking of you, and we come to you from Argo Studios, which had a buy in the first week of NFL play. 
something like by yourself, but Stephanie like ordered for the tape.